Manufacturer Podcast. Today we're looking back at some sustainability-centric insights that took our fancy at Digital Manufacturing Week. And what good is the UK's efforts to decarbonise if the rest of the world can't match them? We'll be discussing that and more in today's episode. Hi there, listener. The sustainability mini-series comes to an end today. Boo! I hear you jeer. Fear not, because we're going out on a high. Joe and Lana join me as usual. Hello to you guys. Hello. Morning, morning. Morning, morning. And a very good evening to the fourth member of our editorial team. It's our international reporter, James Devonshire. Hello, mate. Hi, Tom. Thanks for the introduction. Pleasure to be joining you guys today and giving our listeners a chance to not only hear my rhotic tones, but also some of the insights I've got from living on the other side of the world in a developing country. We have referenced James on the podcast a few times, but like a little bit like that sort of mad relative that you have locked away in, in the, the West, West Wing of your house. It's like, oh, yeah, like he, he exists, but but yeah, yeah. He, he exists, but don't put, him. don't put him on camera or, or record <laughs> his voice ever. Yeah. Mate, absolute pleasure uh, to have you along with us. So, yeah, as you say, we're going to get some uh, some insights from you. We're going to have a, a, a bit of a, a chat, a bit of a chin wag, a bit of nonsense as usual. Uh, but before we do that, Civitas, supported by the ERA Foundation, want to know what the top energy challenges are for SME manufacturers. So a survey has been released to gather views on energy security, resilience, renewable energy, energy costs, the challenge of a clean and stable supply and the impact on future growth. So as part of its research, Civitas discussed these key questions at the SME Growth Summit in Liverpool. And we spoke with Jim McConnellog of Civitas during Digital Manufacturing Week. Some huge challenges exist within the, uh, the energy landscape. What do they look like for SME manufacturers specifically? I think, you know, <laughs> the survey will, will tell us in a way, you know, so I think we have to, I don't want to preempt that too much. But I think there's, there are a range of issues that come out and some are uh, more to do with security and resilience. So in other words, do, do firms face an uninterrupted supply of energy? And when there is disruption, do they have something to smooth out that supply? Um, and, and do, for example, you know, I don't, I don't think it's squarely known how, how much blackouts becomes an issue for manufacturers. And when that does, how do you deal with that level of disruption in your, uh, in your regular uh, production processes? There is also a lot about um, cleanliness of supply in terms of um, what alternative energy sources are, are being used in a, in a regular industrial process and to, so you can fall back on and to generate an improved quality of supply um, and I think there are there's lots of other issues to ask about there in particularly how things become established in regular business practices so you're not just doing things once or twice you know this is becoming part of your routine uh, and how much they for example rely on their own on-site generation so they no longer rely on a, a kind of external source or a mix 
what do they do to actually generate energy for themselves within their own factories, for example? I know you said you, you didn't want to preempt too much, but I mean, do you have some predictions um, for the report findings? If I was going to make some uh, predictions, it would be around, um, I wouldn't like to say how many would, but I think there will be some um, who perhaps come back and discuss some of the issues with uh, quality of supply. Um, I think there'll be lots of good things to talk about and innovations and particularly very good uh, monitoring systems that people are trying to introduce now. So they're putting control panels in there to monitor energy efficiencies. They kind of know and you know there'll be examples I'm sure of um, variable speed uh, fans and pumps so they they know how much energy is almost being used within regular equipment. But I also think on that quality of supply, where there's a bit of discomfort about, okay, you're trying to generate, um, you're trying to generate supply, but there may be some challenges there. So you're falling back on some renewables. Is there intermittency when you're doing that? And also, how, how do you go about addressing that? Because some would say, oh, we fall back on batteries. But as I said, you know, if you're an S smaller SME, what do you do? Because a battery, or other power management solution can be an expensive one. For, so th those are the main things I think might come up, but you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm prepared to be surprised by it, you know. I'd be keen to hear your thoughts on, on how you feel um, uh, government um, could act kind of moving forward and uh, to kind of maintain a, a coherent industrial strategy. I mean, there are um, some reliefs and they are, they are well known now. So we have the non-domestic energy bill relief scheme so there is um, a, a portion of that that can be relied upon okay I, I fully accept and I think it will have to be this is something for the survey because this only goes up till March it's a temporary scheme what do you then do after that disappears so I think that's something that needs answering um, I think um, there is questions about reliefs on uh, through the annual investment allowance and so on. So I think there is some, there is some relief there. Can they be improved upon? Um, I think in terms of what what kind of improvement, I think people want stability and certainty. If manufacturing works in terms of long cycles, it's no good saying for this year we're going to cut the relief, cut the relief, and next year raise it. That needs to. You need to give stability and certainty. I think to businesses to do that. So I think. Um, those are a couple of the things that government could be doing but I think a coherent industrial strategy is perhaps a part of a grander plan I think that will then tell you what kind of energy requirements we have for the UK as a whole and then feed that down into the industrial level and how you can help SMEs uh, plug into that in a way. So JD, mate, how was uh, the flight back home to the Philippines? Awful, I'd imagine. Yeah, pretty tedious to be honest. Um, yeah. As as a as a child, I used to enjoy flying, the excitement of it all. But now I don't like it one bit. I'm I'm jittery. I'm scared of heights. Um, slight bit of turbulence, and I'm immediately questioning airline safety records and thinking the worst. So yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I'm gonna have to book business class next time I fly. I think. I'm too big for economy. Genuinely, I'm 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 too, I'm too big for economy. I don't fit. Too big a star for economy, right? Well, yeah. Quite. Too big a name, yeah. 
Like, yeah. Don't you know? Yeah. Don't you know who I am? Sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Too big a name. I've, flown, I've flown business like, once, and it's having to go back to economy after that was horrible. I can't, ima- I can't imagine Lana likes it either. No, well, having to mingle with like yeah, you know, the, the, the common folk. Yeah. 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 It's Lady, Lady a Dima. tough life. Her, her, her Royal Highness, Lana Dima. Oh, once again, here comes the bullying. <laughs> <laughs> How long um, in total was the flight home, James? Um, so door to door from my mum's house in Dorset to my house in the Philippines was about 40 hours, something like that. By the time you take a little bit, little bit of a drive and a, seven hours in Abu Dhabi airport. Um, what did you do for seven hours in Abu Dhabi Airport, James? Um, is, I there, watched, is there anything to do? Well, actually, yeah, because the World Cup's on in Qatar, and obviously Abu Dhabi is very, very close. So I sat and mm. watched a group of England fans get really, really drunk in Abu Dhabi <laughs> Airport, um, which was which was kind of the highlight of my uh, layover. Yeah, but that is an insane amount of time, though. Like that makes my flight in two days look quite easy and i thought that that was going to be bad being 11 and a half hours okay yeah. my time says nine minutes 27 seconds that's nine minutes 27 seconds it took lana to mention the fact she's going on holiday tomorrow which is, <laughs> which is which is longer than i thought it would take to be honest i thought it was going to be nearer 27 seconds but yeah if, any, if anyone who doesn't already know and i don't think anybody in the english-speaking world doesn't already know lana's going on holiday tomorrow I actually mentioned it to James before the podcast even started. Didn't she I? did, so. yeah. Oh, right, so yeah, so, so I'm, I'm updated well as well. Mentioned. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm, I, I'm here in Southeast Asia and I'm updated. So yeah, it's it's important to to let the uh, you know the listener know that JD does absolutely love it out in the Philippines. He's got his army of kids, um, his house backs onto a beach. It looks magic, um, but something that isn't i guess as widely spoken about as it is over here james is is that you know that issue of sustainability priorities are, are different in, in in a country like the philippines right yeah uh massively i mean right right now i, I hadn't planned it this way but rather timely i'm actually talking to you guys with using our generator at home because we have no power um so yeah power issues where we live are an absolute nightmare um it, our power goes off for probably five to six hours every single day so i'm not talking like maybe it's literally every day um so yeah obviously it's dark here now so my little solar setup isn't really going to cut it so yeah i've had to start the generator and we're currently running i'm currently burning some fossil fuels so i can communicate with these with you guys um which is terrible uh, but that's kind of like how it is here unfortunately needs must doesn't it you know I guess yeah. that's the case. That's the case for lots of people out there. Well, it is. It is the case for lots of people out here in terms of needs must. But I mean, I'm I'm obviously rather fortunate in that I can afford to have luxuries like a little solar setup yeah. and a generator and be able to fuel the generator. People where we live earn average 350 pesos a day. So that's like five to seven pounds fifty daily. Um, where we live, uh, when you think about. The fact that onions, my wife was moaning at me yesterday, the price of onions, they've gone from 20 pesos a kilo last year to 300 pesos today. So like the equivalent of 30p a kilo to four pounds 40 a kilo. So we're talking like almost 
almost a day's salary for somebody to buy a kilo of onions, which is like insane, like basic kind of food stuff. And um, something, that, something that never occurred to me and probably wouldn't to many people in the Western world, James, is that conversation we had about um, the, the single-use plastics, obviously a massive problem globally, but something that's completely unavoidable in your part of the world because of, because of how, how little people have to, 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 get, to get food on the table. Yeah, I mean, you can go you can go to our local market or a, a small store near us and you can buy one peso's worth, which is like, I don't know, less than one penny worth of peppercorns, for example. And you get, like I don't know, like 15 peppercorns and a little tiny plastic bag. Um, and the same goes for shampoo. My wife buys shampoo by the sachet. She doesn't buy a bottle. She buys it by the sachet. And, and she can afford to buy a bottle. But I think it's like a, a habit thing because um, she's grown up buying shampoo by the sachet because yeah people just can't afford to buy a bottle of shampoo because a bottle of shampoo represents like almost a whole day's salary so you buy a small sachet of peppercorns you buy a small sachet of shampoo you buy a small sachet of salt and these are all single use plastics which are going to find their way probably into the oceans philippines are very big obviously an island nation uh, lots of rubbish going into the oceans here sadly um it's yeah it's, there's a glut of single-use plastic and i don't really know where it's going to stop um i've got some ideas but yeah we'll maybe we'll talk about those later but right now yeah i can't see an end to it to be honest and you said they they built i think this is a few months ago whenever it was or they have built or they're in the process of building like a a big um I bet, was it like a, a big power plant somewhere just to, just uh, yeah. to keep the... basically to keep to keep to keep houses powered at the moment they yeah. just built well they're in the process of building three new diesel power plants mm. so so yeah while the western world is actively moving away from fossil fuels here we're literally gravitating towards them um which is slightly counterintuitive when you consider the abundance of sunlight we've got here and renewable sources like solar um but there you go that's this is where we are sadly the sustainability agenda is much more prevalent here now i mean you know it's it's influencing consumer buying decisions it's influencing um you know people's work decisions you know you know people want to know what a company's environmental policy is before they before they agree to work for them and people like, and things like that so but what is the what is the sort of view from the average person on the street in your part of the world jd when they've got other priorities around just putting food on the table is, you know, is the green sustainability agenda even on the radar? No, I mean, particularly where we live, we live on a small island, a very um, agriculture, agriculture focused area. Um, and yeah, for, for, like you said here, it's basically putting food on the table more than anything, which is why people buy the little sachets of peppercorns or the sachets of shampoo or whatever it might be, because that's mm. all they can afford. Um, they literally cannot afford to buy something which is slightly greener, whether it's a bottle of shampoo, which can, the, the, the plastic can be recycled or whatever. Um, they can't afford it. So it's not even on their radar. It's not even part of their agenda because it's not an option, basically. Mm. Now, obviously, if you go to big cities like Manila, um, people are earning more Then, yeah, there, there might be uh, more sustainable thinking going on. But I don't know because I don't live there. So I don't really hear that. But yeah, certainly where we live, absolutely zero when it comes to uh, making sustainable decisions as a consumer. Absolutely not. For me, foreign investment in things like solar would be a good start. Um, but I've lived here for 13 years now and I can understand why there's a reluctance for foreign investment because unfortunately the Philippines hasn't got the best reputation when it comes to corruption and things like that. So mm. foreign investment is always going to be stifled by that kind of um, 
reputation that we've got. Um, we've we've actually, I don't know if you guys know, we've actually got a nuclear power plant in the Philippines. I don't know if you guys knew that. It's in a place called Bataan, which is a bit north from me. Um, but again, it was kind of ill-considered because it was finished in 1984, so a couple of years after I was born. Um, but luckily, it's never actually been fueled or actually worked because it's actually been built on a ge geological fault line. And it's also mm. close to uh, the volcano Mount Pinatubo, which at the time was thought to be dormant, but erupted catastrophically uh, in 1991. So, yeah, it probably wasn't a good idea to build a nuclear power plant where they did. Um, so, yeah. If you, had to, if you had to write a list of places not to build a nuclear power yeah. plant, I think that's probably ticks all the boxes, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, if you're ticking boxes, yeah, on a geological fault line, so prone to uh, earthquakes and also near an, a very active volcano, um, yeah, probably not the best place to build one. But we do have so, one nonetheless. What's happened to it? now then is it's it just, just moth it's not... just mothballed yeah it's just mothballed it was built like i said it was finished in 1984 I, I have to check but it was like over a billion dollars or something crazy to build it um but yeah it's never ever operated it's just pretty much wow. derelict i guess now um wow. so yeah we're, we're going back to fossil fuels well certainly where i live um going back to burning some diesel I know COP27, some of like the the focus points or a couple of the focus points was, was around the importance of finance for progress, so like specifically financing uh, for adaptation uh, and loss and damage uh, reparations for most vulnerable who are not protected by mitigation, you know, and or adaptation efforts. So, you know, we're talking about countries like the Philippines who are least able to cope with the impacts of climate change and, and a feeling of you know the full force of it I, I mean you know JD you've had some horrendous sounding typhoons like you know our fingers are always crossed for for you guys whenever you send you know the pictures of these you know ginormous looking typhoons that are you know heading for the Philippines um, and you know that's something that's going to get worse right you know the more environmentally uh, negligent we are you know those natural disasters are, and severe weather is going to continue isn't it yeah i mean typhoons are always a factor living here um but personally i've witnessed and also my wife obviously she's lived here all of her life um is that typhoons nowadays are a lot stronger than they always used to be and they're also happening outside of the usual season so here we've got mm. what they call the pacific typhoon season which usually runs from may to october which is pretty much you can guarantee if you're going to have some typhoons there within those few months um but yeah like two three years ago we had our most devastating typhoon in december 2019 so outside of the the usual uh season uh we lost our roof our neighbors lost their entire house um so yeah the, the weather here has become noticeably more sporadic and definitely more intense uh, and the same with rising sea levels like, like you mentioned earlier we live on a beach um, and when there's a storm now, the, the ocean reaches levels that we've never seen before. We lost our seawall um, a few years ago, uh, which is testimony to that very fact. Um, yeah, so I don't know where it's going to end. It just sounds horrendous. You know, this this crisis is obviously a you know a global one, isn't it? It needs a, a global effort. I mean, I know we're always talking about you know what what the UK can you know can do and what the UK are doing, what we're not doing, whatever. You know, all the technologies that we're that we're told about and we report on you know often you know to eradicate 
and, and you know it does have a potential to kind of you know, take thousands hundreds and thousands of tons of carbon um out of the atmosphere but you know this is for stuff that we were hearing about at digital manufacturing week but you know it's not going to be available is it to developing nations and uh you know this is about as we said earlier from what came out of cop 27 finding a plan to help vulnerable communities you know to increase their resilience to the impacts of of, of the climate crisis alongside other sustain efforts in sustainable development you know sustainable infrastructure readiness etc that kind of thing so w- what do we make of that i mean are we not relying on on quite a bit of uh, you know, goodwill and, and collaboration there? Or are we going to see, you know, kind of more meaningful outcomes through any of that, do you think? Yeah, yeah, you're right, Tom. I mean, I watched COP27 very closely um, and I was hoping to hear about how advanced countries would be helping their less prosperous counterparts going forward. Uh, and while we did see a breakthrough, certainly um, with the loss and damage funding, so basically uh, advanced countries are going to be helping out um, more vulnerable nations who are hit by climate disasters. That kind of sounds like a bit of a just like a we're gonna we're gonna pay you off for mm. the, the the kind of crap that's going on and impacting you more than it's impacting us. Um, which is which was a bit sad. I mean, I was oh, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. Don't get me wrong, but it doesn't send the right message for me. We should be like actively helping developing nations such as the Philippines and, and most of Southeast Asia, Africa, uh, South America, India, um, to boost their own green credentials and capabilities uh, rather than just kind of compensating them for the effects mm. of the climate problems we've got at the moment. Um, so has anyone heard of Afghan aid? I, I only came across this when I was like kind of doing a bit of doing a bit of prep before this episode. And I guess Afghan aid is, is very much what, what we're talking about, you know, about kind of giving a country, um, you know, help to kind of build more climate resilience. And Afghanistan is is a really vulnerable country when it comes to severe weather impacts. But then it only emits like 0.2 metric tons of co2 emissions so it's like it's the third lowest in in the world as far as emissions go yet it's the 15th most vulnerable country to climate change so it's hit by like increasingly frequent like flash floods droughts avalanches Um, it's had years of conflict and uh, repeated disasters the destruction of arable land uh, you know outdated agricultural practices you know all that sort of stuff makes it you know a tough place to live um, and 80 percent of the population are reliant on agriculture to to survive so like that further severe weather you know means high levels of food insecurity people you know leaving their homes loss of livelihoods all of that stuff um afghanistan's one of the countries who will be you know most tangibly impacted both in the short term and long term by the outcomes of you know what what we've just you know, seen at COP27. Afghan aid, like I say, basically it does the stuff that, that we're talking about. You know, it's supporting communities in Afghanistan with climate adaptation. You know, it doesn't sound overly complicated. You know, it's certainly not done through develop, you know, deploying like smart technologies and, and all of this. You know, it's just by working with communities. It's like building local capacity to respond to these emergencies it's about being better prepared like forming community-based disaster management committees that build flood retention walls trenches like plant trees restore biodiversity and all of that um relocate uh, valuable livestock so it's about supporting communities by providing like you know training and, and resources really and like how to undertake more sustainable efficient and productive 
agricultural practices. So it's good work, but it's you know kind of being done on on a more a more basic level, really. The conversations we have with manufacturers, it, it comes back to that people element again, yeah. doesn't it? It's you know you can throw all sorts of um, technology at a problem, but it's it's the people piece that really makes everything come together and makes everything yeah. move forward and change. Tom, you said previously, like, oh, we're we're kind of relying a lot on collaboration and goodwill. Well, I think you yeah, said, yeah. Um, and obviously we are, but I suppose that does does work to some extent, doesn't it? Like this example that you've given, obviously that is you know people coming together um, and doing what they can, you know. On the basic level, yeah. yeah. Um, but it but it is interesting because obviously a lot of what we heard at Digital Manufacturing Week, but a lot of just what we hear anyway, is about how open manufacturers are now with their sustainable practices and, and how much they are happy to to tell the industry what they're doing so that people can, you know, learn from from them and they can you know have all these open discussions and I always just find that really fascinating just how how open they are about it and how everyone sort of recognizes that it's a team effort go fast go alone if you want to go far go together I think that's the that's the that's the quote isn't it yeah, yeah and the thing and, the, and to follow on from Lana's point there the thing for manufacturers about sustainability um is that it is really a win-win situation because not only do you normally realize cost savings whether it's uh, reducing your reliance on uh, expensive energy or whatever it might be but you also it serves to attract talent as well as, as, as joe mentioned earlier about people now looking for jobs uh, one of the first things they often say is like tell me about your sustainability credentials um, and if you're a company that can't really demonstrate anything in that respect, then you're probably not going to be attracting the talent that you need mm. so desperately, as we all know from our conversations with manufacturers, the skills gaps, um, labor shortage mm. in the manufacturing sector is horrific at the moment, probably the biggest challenge out there. Mm. Um, so if if you can if you can use sustainability as like a competitive differentiator when it comes to recruitment, then absolutely. What a what a bonus. Well, let's wrap it up there then, folks. Uh, I, it's been considerably more highbrow this episode than, than what we're used to. And I, I didn't think... On but, it, I think it just, well, just, just brought an element of suave sophistication to the proceedings. Well, yeah, well, I, I, I just did, raised but, the tone a little bit. But the last time I saw him, we were eating a kebab at 4am in the morning. So, so I don't <laughs> know how he's made this more highbrow, to be honest. That's... <laughs> That's, that's a bit confusing. Um, we're going to have uh, James uh, along for our uh, final episode of the year as well, which will be a little yearly review. Uh, so do keep a look out for that. That's coming soon. Uh, but for now, my thanks to James, Lana and Joe and to you, listener. We will see you next time. Bye bye.